Good morning, everybody. So a couple of things. First of all, thank you for all the well wishes about my face. We have decided that I'm kind of like Russell Wilson, and I rapidly heal. So yes, it hurts, but it looks a lot better, don't you think? The answer is yes. Yeah. Have <laughs> you be careful of those soccer balls. They can hurt. Um, the other thing is Jason, unfortunately, is not here this morning. Um, he came down with something that is not COVID, thankfully, um, but he is under the weather and thought, maybe I shouldn't share that with the rest of you. So just be praying for him as he launches into this week after kind of feeling down and out. Good morning, husband. How's the live stream? Do you want to text me? I haven't really talked to him today, but we already had planned for Bryce to come this morning and to speak, and so that just worked out swimmingly, didn't it? <laughs> um, announcements that I have for you guys. This coming Saturday, I am so excited for our women's event. Um, if you have not signed up for that, there is still room. We would love your RSVP by Wednesday. That will allow us to plan for food because lunch will be provided. Um, of course, we always order a few extras. So if you're a last minute ad, that really is okay. We would want you to still come and be a part of that and reach out to us if you happen to RSVP after Wednesday. But if you can help us plan, that would be lovely. Um, a couple of things that I'm really excited about. I have previewed the talks that we're gonna hear Good. I mean, this one in particular, his name is Mike Todd, and he is like a fireball. Ladies, we are going to have to like hold on to our hair um, as he speaks to us. But he talks about this reality of that we need an anchor and that anchors are not necessary in the shallow end of a swimming pool, which is sometimes where we like to hang out. But life tends to send us into the deep waters and Christ is our anchor in the deep. And so if that is the only thing that we get from Saturday, I think it will be worth all of our time. But there is so much more than that. And we get to hang out together, be together, sit around a table and process some of the things that um, we're hearing and just kind of connect and enjoy each other's company. Um, so please, please sign up for that if you haven't already. Um, we are just excited just keeps coming up but that's how I'm feeling so um you go to brookviewchurch.com forward slash women um to sign up to register you pay there um, and that is how you RSVP if you for some reason are having a tough time navigating that you can always reach out to me and I can help you with that as well so we also have um sponsorships or scholarships that's what they're called scholarships so if if cost keeps you from being able to come to this please reach out as well. We don't want anyone to not be coming because of a financial um, situation. So then the last announcement that I have is fill out your online communication card. We love hearing from you guys throughout the week. We pray for you as prayer needs come in. Um, and I just want to say hi to those of you that have, we've just had an unusual amount of people that are watching online reach out in the past week to say, hey, I'm here. So that's pretty sweet, um, and we love that. We love hearing that there are people that maybe aren't able to be in this room, but are still in our Brookview family. And so guys, we miss you, we love you. I cannot say it a million times in a million different ways, or I can, I could. I can't wait for this to be over and for it to be safe for us to be together and be family again, um, but know that we care about you, we pray for you, and we love hearing that you're with us still. So without further ado, I will pass this off to Bryce. The world, he gave his only begotten son, but the world so hated God that it sinned against him. If you do not turn from your sins, you will die. It's that simple. You either turn or you burn. If you do not repent, you will be cast into the lake of fire and you will burn there forever. This is what you call love speech. We're telling the truth here. Jesus Christ will come back and judge all of us. If we die separated from God in this life, we will be separated for eternity. Think of the worst horror movie you have ever seen. We're gonna go to a drive-through right now and demonstrate that you can hand out gospel tracts 
and drive-through windows. So fast food restaurants, if you're making a coffee stop. Okay, so we're just gonna take our stuff, and we're gonna pay for it, we'll try to hand out one of these. Sometimes, usually they take them, sometimes they don't. Starbucks is a great place because you can probably assume that if you work at Starbucks, you're not a believer. That's just, that's just the way it goes, it's the nature of it. Going, sir. Is like a gospel track today? Sorry. Gospel track today to save you from your sins. Oh yeah. You think you're a good person? Sorry. Do you think you're a good person? I guess. Yeah. The Bible says no one's good, right? No, thank you. No. Take care, boys. Take care of your soul, sir. Like a gospel track today to save you from your sins. How's it going, sir? Like a gospel track. No one's good. That's the problem. Good morning. Good to be with you today. Um, that opening video takes me back to about 1990, and I was uh, walking the sidewalk in Waikiki, and uh, there was a street pe uh, preacher shouting at people as they passed by, and it was one of those turn or burn, you're all going to hell kind of good news messages. <laughs> now, here's the weird deal. I walk in front of him, and he looks at me, and he shouts, I can see the devil in you. And, you know, I was already feeling insecure as a young pastor. And that just about took, took it over the top. I mean, who would look at this guy and say, I want what you're smoking? You know? I wanted to think somehow that we were playing on the same team. And there are times I really wonder if some methods do more harm than good. And it is true. There's more than one way to do evangelism. There are many ways to do evangelism. But there are times I wonder. And some of those negative attitudes that people have toward Christianity might um, be the result of some kind of negative experience they've had. As I reflected on that walking through the street in Waikiki, I thought this to myself though, anyone can shout at the world. It's a much harder thing to love people into the kingdom. And you can shout at the darkness or you can shine a light. And I think when I think of Jesus, he loved people. He loved people into the kingdom. So I don't tend to do evangelism that way. <laughs> and I realize there's different types of people that do different types of things. Um, I'm kind of a friendship evangelism style guy. That's kind of me. But I am so glad to be here with you today, and a big thank you to Jason. I know he's not here today, but uh, I really appreciate the invite that he gave me to come and speak. If we haven't met, my name's Bryce McFadden. I am from Smoky Point Community Church up in Arlington, and I'm on staff there. And currently what I've been doing for the last three years, I am the dean of a ministry school called Reach Training Institute. And uh, that's just been a real blast and uh, such a cool thing to do at this stage of my life to be able to pour into young students as they prepare for ministry. The cool thing too is this series, I really love this series. You've been talking about what is the gospel, you've been addressing false gospels that are so common and prevalent in our American society but fall so short of the true gospel message. You've been challenged to live the kind of life before the world that provokes some curiosity. Why do you do what you do and why are you different? And uh, you've been challenged in terms of practicing just being a friend. And, and last week, Jason was talking about the importance of having meals together and what that really entails and means and being sensitive to where God is leading and moving in that direction. And so uh, it's really cool. I've been teaching a class to our juniors on evangelism. So we've been going through a lot of this stuff. So it's, it's kind of been in my head for a while. So it's great to be here and to be a part of this series and I believe it's concluding next week with message number seven, which seven's the perfect number, so that makes sense, you know? 
I want to talk about bringing the gospel to, the, to today's culture, and I'll be using a word a little bit later on and explain what it means, but contextualizing the gospel to today's culture. Now, if you know anything about culture today, you know that our world is so quickly changing. And in our world, there's such a great uh, variety of belief systems and faiths. And there's so many competing world views. That, that thing that becomes the, the glasses that you put on or the lens through which you look at the world that is often shaped by your upbringing and your life experiences and, and the media, everything from movies to music that begin to shape and frame how you look at the world, what you think, what you do, your values, your attitudes, your actions, the lens through which you see your concept of the world, your worldview. You know, when I gave my life to Christ way back in a long time ago, <laughs> my worldview began to change. Um, God's Word changed my worldview. I began to look at my life and my life purpose and my values and my priorities, and I no longer thought the way that I used to think. It changed my worldview. A couple weeks ago, I was in the Dominican Republic with our freshman class. We were fulfilling requirements for uh, one of our classes that is a missional class. And so uh, it was great to be there in Santiago. We weren't at Puna, Punta Cana, unfortunately. Um, but at the hotel we were staying at, we were, there was a cafe down at the bottom. And so we'd get up in the morning and have some coffee and just kind of watch people. And they're hustling and bustling, getting their day going. And there are some times when I'm in a setting like that where I have some thoughts that come to mind. I think to myself, how many of these people know Jesus? How many of these people are just rushing through their day and living only for today and have no hope for tomorrow? Where do those thoughts come from? It comes from a biblical worldview. Otherwise, you know what? We wouldn't have those questions. We wouldn't have those concerns at all of what is going on with the lives of people and where they are going to spend eternity. I'm thankful that God has changed my worldview and it sure, certainly shapes the way that I see life and my life purpose here. You know, the, the culture today has been termed postmodern or post-Christian. And I have to say the starting points uh, for sharing the gospel is not quite what it used to be. It used to be that you could talk to people about eternity and ask a very challenging question. Do you know where you're going to spend eternity? Less people are interested in eternity today. They're more concerned about living their best life today. It used to be at one time your gospel presentation could begin with, do you know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Today, less people believe in God. And if they do believe in God, he's often far removed from their world and their life. One time a church could put on a good program and people would flock to the church. And years ago, we called ourselves a seeker-sensitive church up at Smoky Point. And uh, we moved out of the chapel, built a huge building, and it was a multi-purpose building, kind of a gymnasium, actually. You kind of got that gymnasium feel because there was hoops at each end. And... Um, but all the emphasis was put on the weekend service. You know, a kicking band and drama and, you know, all the, the colored lights and everything, you know. And uh, the church grew quickly. Um, we probably had between 13 and 1,400 people and four services on a weekend. But what we realized after a while was we were doing poorly in the discipleship category. <laughs> it's one thing to get people. It's another thing to see people find Christ and grow in Christ. But you know, less people today are interested in just showing up at a church. That's the world we live in. I'm not saying that to discourage you, but I, I know the church, we're instructed to meet together. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as it says in Hebrews. But, but at the same time, now the church needs to go into the world and be witnesses. And I was thinking with the way culture is changing, maybe it'd be helpful if we actually viewed ourselves as missionaries. You know, missionaries, when they go to another culture, they have to learn about that culture and they have to learn to understand that culture. And with the way our culture is changing, we have to look at even life in the United States in a missional way. 
What is the culture I'm living in? How are things changing? I love this quote by Erwin McManus. He said this, If you have a church full of members, you will get an occasional missionary. But if you have a church full of missionaries, the rest is just about geography. Isn't that good? Today we live in a biblically illiterate society. I know way back when they would use the Bible as curriculum in schools. That was a long time ago. But you know, less people understand and know things about the Bible today than ever before. A Gallup poll was uh, somewhat recently taken. 12% of professing Christians in America believe that Noah was married to Joan of Arc. Yeah, Yeah, serious. In other parts of that uh, poll that was taken, the most popular answer to who delivered the Sermon on the Mount was Billy Graham. Yeah, one out of three said Jesus. Uh, Less than 50% could name the first book of the Bible, and 82% of Americans believe that God helps those who help themselves is actually a Bible verse. Now, if you're hearing you thought it was a Bible verse, I'm not picking on you. (laughs) Let me share one from Britain. More than half, 54%, believe that Hunger Games is or might be a story in the Bible. Crazy. We live in, I could have shared a lot more, but all to make the point, we don't have the same kind of knowledge. We're not working with the same kind of information, and we can't assume, we can't assume that people have the same information that we have. I want to spend some time looking in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34, uh, uh, just an awesome passage, and the Apostle Paul is spending some time in the city of Athens. My hopes are that out of this, it'll be an encouragement to you as you seek doors of opportunity, as you live out and share your faith in your neighborhoods, your places of influence, your marketplace. So let me set up the backdrop a little bit to Acts chapter 17. Paul is on his second missionary journey. He's eager to share Jesus, and people come to faith in Christ. And if you follow the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, you realize that that people come to Christ through the sharing of the gospel. At the same time, it also agitates a lot of people and it stirs up a lot of opposition. And many times, Paul's life is in danger. He's traveling. His traveling companion is Silas. In chapter 17, they arrive in the city of Thessalonica. And as Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath and he begins to reason in the synagogue, sharing Old Testament scriptures and linking the prophecies with Jesus Christ, their fulfillment. Some of the Jews were persuaded. They joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. Lives are being changed. At the same time, there were Jews in Thessalonica that are not happy about the fact they're actually jealous of Paul when they see people being converted. And so they stir up the, the mob. They, they actually um, get some bad dudes to come in and stir up the crowd, and pretty soon Paul's life is in danger. So Paul and Silas, and I believe Timothy at the same time, they all go to Berea. They leave at night for safety reasons. They're in Berea. Paul's doing the same thing. He's going to the synagogue. Many of the Jews believed, and a number of Greek men and women also believe. But the Jews in Thessalonica that were trying to get at the Apostle Paul find out he's in Berea. They come there, stir up the crowd. Pretty soon you have a riot going on, and Paul is whisked away on a ship heading to Athens. Uh, Silas and Timothy remain behind in Berea. Uh, Athens is about 195 miles away from Berea, about from Seattle to Salem, Oregon, only It's traveling on the water, not I-5. Now we pick up the story in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. It says this, While Paul was waiting for them, meaning Timothy and Silas, in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Uh, The city of Athens was a beautiful city. Magnificent buildings, temples, architecture, sculpture, art, culture. My, my guess was probably in that day, people would ask each other, have you ever been to Athens? It's the most beautiful place. It was also known as an intellectual center. 
uh, home of uh, some philosophers you'll probably recognize, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle. Uh, one person said it's kind of like Oxford and Cambridge and MIT all in one. It was an intellectual center as well. But you know, Paul is in Athens, but he's not a tourist. He's not looking at the city like a tourist and simply admiring all the, the sculptures. What he sees is a city that's full of idols or thick with idols. He's distressed. There's, there's something going on in his heart, in his soul. He's provoked. He's agitated. This doesn't sit well with him. Obviously, Paul's biblical worldview is clashing with what he sees in the society around him. He's, he's distressed with a holy discontent. It's interesting, Athens was a city of about 10,000 people, but boasted of 30,000 gods, idols, and temples. Of course, the Greek pantheon was all represented typically in high points of the city. You've got Zeus, Athena, Apollo, Poseidon, and on and on. It was commonly said that chances are when you were visiting Athens, you would more likely meet a god than a man. <laughs> and that say something? You know, 10,000 people, 30,000 gods. You know, today we have our idols, but they may not be of stone, wood, or metal. As one man said, when man ceases to worship God, he doesn't worship nothing, he worships everything. Just about anything in our world can become an idol. Anything in our world can become greater and more important to us than anything else. This was highlighted for me a few years back when I was called by the local funeral home to ask if I could help plan a memorial service for a family. Uh, they had my, my name there and being pastoral care at the time, uh, it wasn't uncommon to see me show up at a, a funeral home. And so sometimes families would be looking for a pastor to do a memorial service and um, they'd give me a call and I, I show up, first time meeting the family. So I was meeting with them and doing some of the typical things as you plan a service, you're talking about their loved one, you wanna make it a real honoring celebration. And uh, so I was asking questions like, what did your father do? What did, what, did, uh, what did he like? How did he display his love for you? Now when I got to that question, a couple of the adult daughters started choking back the laughter and they had to get up and leave the room. Awkward moment. I discovered later that their father was a golf nut and it consumed all his time and attention that eventually he lost his marriage and family and everyone in the family knew that golf had become his idol. Sad, sad. Paul's here in the city of Athens. He's provoked in his spirit. He has a zeal for God's glory. He wants Jesus to be worshiped, not idols. He, see that, he sees that people are being misled down the wrong road by the enemy. He has a heart of compassion to those that are lost without Jesus. And it moves him to action. Guess what? He's not going to wait for Silas and Timothy. <laughs> I like that. First verse, he's waiting. Now he's doing something. In verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. This word reasoned is where we get our English word dialogue. So I get the idea that Paul is just not going in there with this message and just going away with it. He's actually engaging in conversation. He's dialoguing. He's asking questions. They're asking questions. They're responding. He's responding. It's a back and forth thing. And that was Paul's customary approach to the Jewish audience. He would reason from scriptures and share fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He didn't assume that just because they were synagogue members that they were family members. <laughs> he also engaged in the marketplace. And I love Paul's flexible strategy of evangelism. You know, today most people will not just show up in church. In fact, the uh, church attendance uh, for those that do not attend has nearly doubled since 1991. We really do need to engage the world in the marketplaces. Places of business and gyms and neighborhoods and stores, gas stations, baseball games, even soccer games. <laughs> but we need to watch out for the ball. I, I heard someone met one face to face. <laughs> 
You are looking good though. I highly doubt that Paul used the same approach in the marketplace that he did in the synagogue. I mean, if he started talking about Abraham to the Greeks and the Romans, they would have no clue. They didn't have the Old Testament background. Paul was very aware of his audience. To be effective in our culture today, I think we need to be so aware of our audience. And to know our audience, I'd suggest the same approach I like to use for pastoral counseling. Uh, I call it the Columbo method. Just look stupid and ask dumb questions. <laughs> it works. Sometimes I think as, uh, as believers, we're so intent on dumping the load that we brought to the conversation that we fail to take the time to listen, to know what our audience knows and where they're at. And I have to confess, when I was a young pastor, I was trained in how to share the gospel. And, and, and I, I started in the ministry with this attitude, I just got to get this message out. And, you know, I didn't take the kind of time that I needed to really get to know people first and find out where they were at. And I look back with a little bit of regret, wishing I would have done it different. I had to learn the hard way on that. But, you know, we need, we need to find out what our audience knows. What are their experiences? What is their level of understanding on spiritual matters? Because it's so easy to begin to spout what we know before understanding what they know. So ask good questions. Listen well. Take the time to understand where they are at. And it'll help guide future conversation. Now in verse 18, there's a couple groups there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Two popular schools of thought, uh, philosophical schools in the city of Athens, the Epicureans, they were materialists. They were atheists. They believed that everything ended at death. There was no eternity. If you have that kind of philosophy of life, guess what? All your emphasis is put on the here and now. So their, their idea was, you know what? Just live your life. Enjoy the pleasures of life. You only live once. If it feels good, do it. Anything that's done in Athens stays in Athens. <laughs> and then you have the Stoics. They were pantheists. They believed there was some divine principle in all of nature. Everything is somehow connected whether good or evil. They were fatalists. Life is going to happen. Don't resist it. Travel through it. Keep a stiff upper lip. When we think of a person who's stoic, they often is the kind of person that they kind of go through life and whatever comes their way, they seem to kind of maintain an even kill. That, that was the stoic kind of approach to life. Just buck up. It's obvious they aren't familiar with what, what Paul is sharing and they're not real complimentary either. They call him a babbler. Um, this actually means a seed picker. Uh, someone who picks up scraps of information from here and there and then begins to peddle it like it's their own. Original ideas. They call him a babbler. Some thought he was introducing foreign gods, new foreign gods. Jesus and then a God called the resurrection. So, verse 19 then they took him and brought him to a meeting in the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. They sound like a retirement community, <laughs> don't they? That's what I want to do when I retire. I want to spend all my time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas and drinking coffee. <laughs> Let me tell you about the Oropagus. Uh, it was up on a hill, the hill of Ares, or the Greek god of war, or the equivalent to the Roman god Mars. So sometimes it's referred to as Mars Hill. Uh, the Oropagus was a group that was more of a court or a city council. They were the guardians of civil and religious matters. 
Now, I don't know about this time, by the time Paul was there, but centuries earlier, Socrates had spoken to the Areopagus, um, and they decided they didn't like what he was teaching, and they put him to death. Now, I don't know if, if it was that serious of uh, kind of a verdict in Paul's time, but they certainly were the gatekeepers of what was going to be spoken in the city of Athens. In verse 23, Paul stood up at the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Kind of an understatement. Could have been taken probably as a compliment. I see that you're very religious. For as I walked around and observed your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Now what Paul is doing here is he is contextualizing the gospel without changing the message of the gospel. He finds what's familiar in his listener's world and uses it as a bridge to spiritual truth. You know, Jesus did that over and over again. I think one classic example is in John chapter 4, he's in Sychar. He's at the well and a woman comes to draw water from the well and he asks her for a drink. And then he launches into a conversation using the subject of water, right? He says, I have, I have water. I have living water. Water that you will never have to draw water again. You will never thirst. And suddenly he's contextualizing and he's taking something very familiar in her culture and bridging it into something spiritual. And Paul's using that with the unknown God. What an interesting history behind the unknown God. About 600 years before Paul was in Athens, there was a plague that hit the city of Athens. And uh, they were trying to do whatever they could do, calling upon their gods to stop this plague. People were dying. And they finally decided, because the plague wasn't stopping and the gods didn't seem to be answering, so someone suggested they run a flock of sheep through the city. And any sheep that laid down in the city, they would sacrifice it to an unknown god because they had this idea that we, we're not getting the right god. And so... We don't know who this God is, but there is a God that must be greater than the gods that we have. A God that is actually greater and good. And so they sacrificed sheep to the unknown God and the plague stopped. How interesting Paul taps into that because he's going to talk to them about a God who is so much greater. A God who is good. And you know, if, anything about, if you know anything about the backgrounds of the gods, they were not happy gods. <laughs> You know, Paul goes on to say in verse 24, now he's going to share with them. He said, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. For one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. He determined the times set for them and the exact places that they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Paul's contextualizing again. He's very familiar with their beliefs regarding their particular gods. He's also knowledgeable of their poets. In fact, he quotes from a couple of them. Now, does this mean that Paul agrees with everything the poet said? Uh, certainly not. But he uses it as a bridge to truth. You know, I was thinking it's not unlike a, maybe a pastor who in his message refers to uh, the lyrics of a popular song or takes a clip out of a movie to contextualize something that we know in our experience, in our culture, and moves it into a spiritual truth, contextualizing. Paul's going to share with them about this God that they don't know, but a God that can be known. He talks about the greatness and glory of God. He's creator and Lord. He's greater than nature. He can't be confined in a temple or represent, represented by anything made by human hands. In fact, it was God who said in Isaiah 66, Heaven's my throne, earth is my footstool. 
He shares a God who's autonomous and the source of life. Uh, in Greek mythology, the gods were served by human hands. There was many stories where the gods manipulated humans to get what they wanted, but they needed men. The true God has need of nothing. Rather, man needs God. Everything comes from God. He is the giver of life and breath. In fact, our very next breath comes from Him. You know, in the past minute, each of us drew about 18 breaths of air. In the past hour, we breathe 1,080 times, which adds up to more than 25,000 times in the past 24 hours. If you're 40 years old, you've gulped more than 365 million breaths of air. Each breath is a gift from God. For one man, He made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. He determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. He rules over all. You know, the, gods, uh, the, the Greek gods were always at war with each other. They would use humans as a means for gaining additional territory and control in Greek mythology. The true God doesn't have any boundaries, does He? In fact, He sets the boundaries. He's the source of the creation of all nations and He sets their boundaries in both time and space. And then Paul goes on with something now becoming even more personal. The unknown God is good and gracious. He's approachable and He's knowable. In fact, he says he's not far from each one of us. You know, the gods of the Greeks were not approachable. They could be near or far away, you wouldn't know. But God is near. In fact, the Bible says he's near to those who call upon him. I'm so thankful to know a God who delights in revealing himself. A God who makes himself known. I'm thankful that God made himself known to me. And He wants a relationship with us and He longs and delights to show us who He is and what He can be. That's our God. Paul goes on in verse 29, he says, Therefore, since we're God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made in man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such, such ignorance. It's not that God is passive regarding idolatry. I mean, he could have judged and condemned the world a long time ago, but he's patient. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent, change of heart and mind that leads to a change of direction and action. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof to this to all men by raising him from the dead. He's sharing Jesus by the way, this isn't Paul's full sermon. Typically, when somebody spoke before the Oropagus, it was a two to three hour message. <laughs> we only have a clip. Uh, the reason I say that is because when I was doing some research on this, I came across some commentaries that were saying, well, really, uh, Paul really blew it here. Paul's message, he kind of missed it. This was probably Paul's worst message because he didn't talk about the cross. But you know, um, Paul mentions the resurrection. Why would you mention a resurrection if there wasn't first a death? I'm positive Paul shared the cross because that's, that's what Paul was all about. I'm going to share Jesus. Christ crucified, dying in our place for our sin. So we don't have to. And he not only died, but he rose again. I am sure he talked about that because proclaiming Jesus was his mission to know Christ and make Him known. Paul concludes with their responsibility and let's look at the response. In verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Maybe the Epicureans. They didn't believe in the afterlife. Others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Oropagus, also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. You know, I read that and, and there's something of wonder and marvel 
about the message of truth, about the gospel. It changes lives. Isn't it amazing that someone can, can share the gospel or a person can read the gospel and God works and touches the heart in a powerful way that it dramatically transforms their heart and life? That will never cease to amaze me. And that happens here. I want to share just some practical application. There's a lot of things that we could say about this passage, but let me just give you four thoughts to think about. The first thing I think when it comes to evangelism, I think evangelism begins in the heart. Being missional begins in the heart. And I believe that, that God has to stir our hearts to bring and move us to action. So that'd be the first thing is ask God to stir your heart. And you know, it's not just not a one-time ask. I think it's something we need to continue to ask. God, keep my heart tender, tender toward what you want to do in this world. Tender with compassion for those that don't know you. Concern for the lostness in this world. That's a hard issue. That's a hard thing. The second thing is start a conversation. You know, there are places you go and people you know. Don't wait for an opportunity. Create one. Start a conversation. I'm not saying rush in with the gospel. Create a friendship. Start talking to people. You know, I've made friends uh, in our area with a local businessman. And uh, I found out through conversation with him that his mom is a believer. He's not. And uh, the other day I saw him and he invited me over to his table and I sat down and in real hushed tones he goes, do you think we're living in the last days? <laughs> what, what, a great, what a great conversation to get into. <laughs> that was so cool. And um, he later said, in the, you ever have a conversation with somebody where you go, you know, it's about two hours later and you go, I should have said that. You have those? So he, in his, after we were done talking about some things, he goes, yeah, I don't, I don't believe in organized religion. Later, and I wish I would have said this, well, how about disorganized religion? Yeah. <laughs> and then I would invite him to our church. Because <laughs> we're really disorganized. You know? You know what's funny? This guy's a big guy. And when we were leaving after our conversation, I was putting out my hand to shake his hand, and he goes, boom, gives me a big old hug. I know that he appreciated the conversation, and I have some things, are, some things are stirring in his heart. He's got some background knowledge there. So I'm going to tap into that. I'm going to follow up, see where that goes. Third thing is this, get to know who you are talking to. Ask good questions. Find out about their background, their worldview, how they came to the views that they have. They say something and you don't have an immediate answer good thing to say is well how'd you come to that conclusion they say i don't believe there is a god oh how did you come to that conclusion find out what are they thinking and you might even find that you have some common ground that can help build a bridge in conversation i love what uh one author he wrote a book on evangelism and his last name is kukul k-o-u-k-l his book is tactics excellent book he talks about putting a rock in someone's shoe. What he's saying is make a comment, something that, that they have to keep thinking about. I, I love that idea. And, and do it respectfully. Um, I, I was at the YMCA and, and had, uh, I was working out there, had a lot of opportunity to, to talk to people. Usually what I would do when I went to the Y, I would work out, I'd get to know people. I never told them what I did, and I was a pastor. But I wasn't going to say that because I didn't want to, you know, stall conversation right from the get-go. So I'd work out with them. I'd ask them what they do. I'd find out all about them. And, you know, chances are after a few weeks, they would go, what do you do? And I'd go, I'm a pastor. And they'd look at me a little sideways for a minute. And then they'd go, I, I know this guy because we've been, you know, working out together and whatnot. And so I got to know people there. One was one of the employees there by the name of Nancy. And... Um, I had had a little bit of spiritual conversation with her, not a whole lot, but one day I just made an offhand comment. I said, it's interesting how much time people spend working on the outside, which is temporary, and how little time people spend working on the inside with what's eternal. 
About three days later, Nancy came to me and she goes, I can't stop thinking about what you said the other day. I'm like, what did I say the other day? <laughs> I couldn't remember. In fact, the minute I walk out the door, I'll forget the sermon we preached. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, man, that opened up a great opportunity. And I continued to follow that with conversations, eventually shared the gospel, and Nancy invited Jesus to be her Savior. And here's, what, here's a cool part of the story. I don't want to leave this out. Is I decided Nancy needs to grow in the Lord, so I got her a discipleship book and a Bible. And she worked the front counter at the YMCA. She'd have her Bible and her discipleship book sitting right there. And she knew everybody that came to the Y. And of course, they come in, they go, what are you working on? What are you studying? She'd go, I gave my life to Christ, and I'm learning what it means to follow Him. I mean, she was an instant witness for Jesus, you know? So cool. Here's the fourth thing. Be faithful and leave the results to God. I have so many stories. I'd love to share them all with you. Um, I might squeeze a couple in here. I'll go kind of quick, okay? Uh, anybody stomach growling or anything? You need to get out? Oh. Um, here's the thing. God changes the heart. The whole time you're, you're working with people and talking to people, be praying for them. I, I, I know there's places that you frequent, that you build relationships with people. Um, when I moved in the Smoky Point area, I just found a local place to get a haircut. I went to a place and, and I had a lady cut my hair. And her, her name was Nina. And um, my, my first visit there, she's wearing a pentagram around her neck. She's all in black, black fingernails. I mean, she's part of the goth community. She loved to run down to Seattle on the weekends, be a part of the Seattle Underground. I didn't ask too many questions about that. Um, and at first, I was, I was going to try and find a different person to do my hair. Because um, I was feeling a little bit uncomfortable. I, hey, you don't want a Satanist working on your hair. Yeah. You know? Because guarantee they're going to take more than your hair. No, just kidding. Um, but you know, I decided to stick it out. And as I got to know Nina, I started to learn that there were people that she did hair for that were professing Christians. And they would kind of preach at her while they were sitting in the chair. And other people, instead of tipping her, would leave a tract. And I determined from start one that I was going to show Nina a different kind of Christian. In fact, I really wanted to break the stereotype in her mind. And so I went to her for probably 16 years. Yeah. And my hair kept growing. <laughs> and and uh, she kept cutting. But um, I was always praying for her. And, you know, we'd have, and, you know, over those years, I saw her leave that culture begin to mellow out, share concerns in her life. And um, it was really cool. Um, I, I always wondered, how can I, how can I give Nina the gospel? It just didn't seem normal in the, the chair sitting there. We had a mutual friend, one of her clients, one of the seniors in our church who passed away. And uh, guess who came to the service? Guess who was speaking the service? And I had that wonderful opportunity, God answered prayer, and I was able to share the gospel with Nina in the audience. And I was even able to say some kind things from up front about Nina, her relationship with the woman that passed, who was a strong believer. Nina didn't find the Lord, but I still believe she's on the way. Let me give you one more story. Um, some... Christian parents had a son that was really going through a lot of challenges and difficulty and they were wondering if I would follow up, just get a hold of him and see if I can maybe chat with him. Their son's name was Ed. And uh, I got together with Ed and Jason was talking about meals last week. That was Ed and my thing. We'd go have lunch. And I'm talking, find out about the pain in his life and sharing Jesus and you know, I got to the point of being able to fully share the gospel with Ed. And um, I'd get to the end and I'd go, Ed, is this the life you want? Are you ready to really surrender your life to Christ and invite Him to be your Savior? And Ed would go, I, I, I don't think I'm ready. And, you know, after about three of those conversations, I was like, I'm getting a, I'm, I'm getting a little bit impatient here, you know? I remember sharing this with my dad. 
And he gave me some of the best advice. He said, you know what? It's God who draws. You be faithful, but it's God who does the work in the heart. You keep praying for Ed. So that's what I did. One night I was teaching high school youth group. There was a knock at the door, and the person at the door said, hey, there's a guy out in the parking lot that needs to see you. I went out there, and there was Ed in his truck crying like a baby. He said, I, I want to invite Jesus to be my Savior. And it dramatically transformed Ed's life. And, you know, it's always been a good lesson to me. Prayer is so vital and so key. It's God who prepares a heart. The Bible says that it's God that draws men to himself by his spirit. And so those are four things. Hope they can be practical things that maybe they'll be a part of implementing uh, in your own life as you seek to pursue to reach this world for Jesus. I want to pray for us. And I'm, I'm with you in this, all right? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for how you love us so much that you have actually sent Jesus into this world to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death we deserve, all that we might come into a relationship with you. And Lord, you have given us this wonderful message to share. Lord, I pray that you would touch our hearts that, Lord, we would see um, just a, an incredible change in our whole perception of this lost world, that we might have hearts of compassion. Lord, I pray that we would have a holy discontent to see people going off in life without you. And, Lord, lead us to the next step of action. And, Lord, we commit all this in your hands and in your care, knowing that you even go before us in every conversation, every exchange, every relationship. And so we commit all this to you in Jesus' name, amen.